It has been a minute, y'all. I have missed this. A few weeks ago, my friend Shelly Patel and I recorded an episode, and I have just not had the chance to finalize and release it because my fiance and I moved about a week ago. And if anyone knows me well, they know that I kind of become this obsessive maniac when it comes to moving and then unpacking. I sort of relish this process. It is chaos, but I love the chaos. I love to marry condo this shit. And just like John Nash, you know, in A Beautiful Mind, he goes to the library on the brink of discovering this life-changing economic theory. He's writing on library walls and windows. He's staying up nights. He can't even eat a sandwich because he's so inspired. That is me. He's writing the game theory on the Princeton walls. I'm hanging up Society Six prints on my chipped painted walls. So needless to say, I have a clean house by the end of this. He wins a Nobel Prize. So the real winner here is up for debate. I'll let you decide. But anyways, back to why we're here. So Shelly and I were really fascinated by this topic that we stumbled on, which is not something revolutionary. We all know it. Gender norms. This is a universal phenomena. All cultures, all subcultures, it doesn't just mean ethnic, have some type of nuance when it comes to male and female dynamics, standards, expectations, internalized messages. So we had a lot to say when it came to the Indian American experience and how all of these have really influence the choices that we've made when it comes to relationships, family, uh, romance, and our careers. It also has really determined a lot of our journey in deciding what is the type of future that we want. And also it has helped us and at times restricted our voices. And so we visited some of these experiences that have occurred to us and Honestly, we barely make a dent in this conversation. This is such a lengthy and meaty one that requires a lot of different perspectives, and we have just a few. And so with that, we'll bring Shelly. Shelly Patel, thank you for being on Down to Brown. Yes, this is so fun. I'm so excited. No, same here. I feel like I, you're another person that I'm just so excited to have gotten to know better and better over the years. And it just, it's crazy. COVID sort of felt like it brought us together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I think the way we met was super unique, um, but we just like quickly bonded. And yeah, it's been great that despite COVID and obviously no coming out to California anytime soon, <laughs> yeah. sadly. Um, but yeah, I'm so glad we've been able to, to stay close and, you know, still still stay connected. Totally. And I'm particularly excited to talk to you about this topic because I have always and not to make you blush through your beautiful brown skin, but um, I have always like had a friend crush on you. Like oh it is God. like totally my kink <laughs> to see like badass women. And um, I've always admired like you just stood out like as, especially like as Indian American women, we have a lot of. Um, we have our own journeys kind of working through like how much we can be assertive and mm-hmm. ourselves and loud. And I just loved how secure you are and were with yourself. 
But I particularly remember when we went to our mutual friend's bachelorette and like I had no idea it was my first ever like bachelorette slash like Mm -hmm. good friend getting married and we were in like the Vegas hotel lobby waiting for a stripper to arrive. Oh god. And you just like had (laughs) you're cool and you were so like confident and I was like, who is this woman? Oh god, I'm glad I faked that well (laughs) because that is not an everyday situation. So just say I was confident. slightly disappointed yeah not not my you know weekly activities on a on a saturday night typically that's that's a bummer to hear kelly (laughs) when we initially talked about gender norms and i told you that's something i wanted to approach you with what were your initial thoughts yeah um really good question i have just so many thoughts on this topic because obviously, you know, it intersects with also our experience with being brown and there's a million nuances to it. You know, there's the expectations around one being brown, but then also being brown and female and, you know, how that sort of applies to then different aspects of your life, whether it's family, work, maybe relationships, friends, Um, You know, there are so many different directions to go in there, Um, but especially kind of growing up, um, you know, with with a brother, with a lot of like male friends around um, now being in a very male dominated career. um, There were just so many thoughts, you know, that came to mind when you first mentioned it. Absolutely. So I can't wait to get deeper into those. Um, And I know this is also very interestingly timely because we're also just in the 24-hour bliss of finding out that Kamala Harris won the um, VP-elect role. I know. So I know, like, we um, first platonically fell in love in Chicago. um, And I really, like, through this group of yours, I feel like that's how I started to feel connected to that city and that state. Mm -hmm. So... You are a Chicago girl. Um, what was it like to grow up in your household? And what was your guys' story? Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was actually, you know, to your point, I was um, actually born, like, right here in the city on the south side of Chicago. And then, um, you know, we moved uh, to the to a couple of different Chicago suburbs just throughout my childhood and adolescence. Um, and I think, you know, if if people listening kind of know like the Midwest, some of the like sort of generalizations or stereotypes we have about the Midwest, um, a lot of those like really applied to my family and to my childhood. Like we had a very all American Midwest family. Um, Mm. I think on top of that, you know, we, we did, or not we, like my parents um, did immigrate here on their own, like without any other family. you know, their, their siblings and, and parents and, you know, all of their, their familial connections are still, are still in India. And so growing up here then in the Midwest, you know, we didn't necessarily have an Indian community right away. Uh, we just kind of, you know, assimilated and got to know those in our neighborhood. And obviously our neighborhoods were very diverse. Mm-hmm. And so that led to things like, you know, my parents putting me into activities that they saw our neighbors doing, you know, maybe Girl Scouts and then with Girl Scouts doing things like going fishing, going camping, like 
going to the dunes and Wait, hold Wisconsin up. You went Dells. fishing and camping. <laughs> this is not something I commonly hear Indian American families do, especially fishing. It's definitely not typical, and and I'm not going to pretend like it became like our family pastime or tradition or anything like that. But every Diwali, <laughs> yeah, right. We're actually going next weekend. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, yeah, it definitely didn't like stick necessarily, but you know, I think in my parents wanting my brother and I to have that, you know, again, that all American experience, they, you know, if they saw like neighbors and friends doing these things, they were like, yeah, of course, like, why are we not doing these things, you know? And um, that, that sometimes meant some of these unconventional or I guess just like less typical activities that you don't see in. Indian American families very often. And it really wasn't until much later that we started meeting other Indian families and sort of developing that sense of community that so many of our parents do have in in our hometowns, you know, where they kind of create that family friend network that in some cases ends up sort of replacing your family, because a lot of us, you know, don't have immediate family here, but you kind of have this like adopted family through your your family friend network. Yeah, I think it's so special looking back. I don't know if you knew this when you were a kid, but as a kid, I remember on my end, similarly, like our family making friends with different Indian families and having that sort of mini community. Mm -hmm. And I used to kind of feel like, well, like, can we make friends with other people too, mom and dad? Mm-hmm. Like, and now I look back and I understand completely why they did it, why it's totally. so important, right? But you just don't quite understand like the position your parents might be in at that point. Um, and I love that, like, I think it's such a kind of funny thing that our immigrant, anyone who's an immigrant, like, can probably relate to that feeling of looking over and being like huh like I want to try that too and you like sometimes don't even know what the heck you're doing like Mm -hmm. I'm imagining like fishing or like we used to like do like pumpkin the first time we pumpkin Mm. carved we're like Mm -hmm. what is this but it's sort of like being at a restaurant and you're looking over and you're like that burger looks good like let's try it too um and so I just I feel like that is something that I really really appreciate looking back this sort of naive Mm -hmm. marvel over things that are very American Oh, totally. And like, of course, it's with the best of intentions, right? That like we should have all of those same experiences that any other kind of American child is having growing up. And at the same time, I'm actually, in hindsight, impressed that so many of our parents were able to form those communities. You know, sometimes it wasn't like today where you have like Facebook and texting and all this stuff. You know, I mean, I remember my mom finding, you know, she'd be like, oh, there's another Indian family in the neighborhood. Let's swing by, let's drop off a gift or, you know, whatever, just introduce ourselves. And then, you know, years later that the the son or the daughter would become one of our best friends. And (laughs) I can imagine how like scary or, or challenging that was in that moment, but they probably recognized that, okay, if we want any sort of community here or network here, we are going to have to put ourselves out there. And I, I you know, I, I'm sure that wasn't easy. Totally. And for that same reason that I mentioned earlier of like, oh, it'd be cool if we met other people. I completely underestimated how ballsy my parents were in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and it just seemed to me, I was like naive and I was like, oh, it's so easy to be friends with Indian people. But you're right. Like, it's absolutely not. You're still putting yourself out there and finding something in a place that you're otherwise 
more isolated in. Mm -hmm. What's interesting Mm -hmm. to me about building these communities and like our sort of chosen family when we move, um, I should give our parents credit, not we, but is that you sort of replicate this uh, collectivist community culture again in America, Mm -hmm. which is otherwise individualist. So you have a society where you need to show up then again, where you care about how you look and present yourself, those things that Indian Americans typically think about because of the Indian culture of Mm -hmm. how you're coming, showing face in front of a group. Um, So I'm kind of curious, like, did did that ever come into play for your life where by having this type of community, you started to be told or heard more in the family about like how to show up? Yeah, so that's super interesting um, because I think that's where this concept of like gender norms comes into play because, you know, before that community existed for me, it's, it was me, my parents and my brother. So there was no sense of, you know, him being into something that's more boyish and me being into something that's more girly. Like we had our separate interests, but if both of us were into video games or whatever, any, any activity that you may like stereotypically associate with, one gender over the other, it wasn't a big deal because we just did those things together, you know? And it wasn't until we met those other Indian families that I kind of got introduced to, um, I don't know, the word, like girlier, I'm putting that in air quotes as I say it, like some <laughs> of the, the girlier aspects of Indian culture, you know, um, dance and Bollywood and everything around Indian pop culture. and things like that, like I had no idea about any of that stuff until we saw that other Indian families, you know, some of the the women in their families were were involved in those things. And I think luckily, I mean, I am grateful that that stuff wasn't pushed too hard on me. Like once my parents saw that I just genuinely wasn't interested in a lot of it, they did accept it. You know, maybe it wasn't right away, but like they did, they did, kind of accept that, okay, you know, we've introduced Shelly to some of this stuff. She's not feeling it, you know, and that's, that's mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's still, it's still kind of, um, was very much there at every, you know, Indian family party. Like maybe the girls would be performing some Indian dance, you know, and I, literally would be like in the corner like reading a book or something you know? <laughs> like that must have been pretty embarrassing for my parents where I'm like yeah this is fun like I'll sh- I'll come with my parents because what choice do we have at that age but um you know I'm definitely bringing like like yeah. my book or I remember having this little like handheld video game that I used to just like play when I didn't oh think like God. any of the kids I know it's we should take a few minutes to just like make fun of me for that but um, you know, I think it was, it, I, I think it was uncomfortable for my parents to like have to kind of watch that or see that, you know, the, some of the other kids were being praised for their involvement in these things, you know, and I was kind of doing my own thing, you know, and not to the point of being a social outcast, I would still hang out with all the kids, but then like, you know, if they're like, oh, we're going to Bart Natim class together or we're going to go practice our dance for this performance, I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll just come watch or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, still be a part of things while, while not like actively participating. So in those moments, you mentioned your parents feeling maybe some type of way. Um, it doesn't sound like they were too 
caught up on it but Mm -hmm. how about you did you feel uncomfortable when you saw did you feel like you were comparing yourself to the girl who was dancing to Dilsey's, you know, <laughs> Chaya Chaya, and you're sitting and playing Pokemon. Um, yeah, so what's really interesting about that is I, I knew so adamantly that I wasn't into it. So I, I never like necessarily forced myself to pretend to be, but I think the the praise and the attention that was directed towards those things really, really bothered me because mm-hmm. I was also, as you can tell, I, I was quite a dork um, <laughs> growing up and I, I took my accomplishments in school and other things like that super, super seriously, as do a lot of Indian kids and a lot of Indian families. And I was always kind of like, hey, like, don't we think those things are important? Like, how come we're not talking about that stuff like why are we why is our our praise or our attention you know being focused on these other aspects of our culture that um at least i didn't think were as important you know and and not to say those aspects of culture aren't important they just you know for me they they didn't jive for me but totally fine that they were you know they were up other people's alleys but i you know i i did think and it, you know, it definitely wasn't this conscious thought at that age, but I never thought it was fair that with the women specifically, we weren't talking about those other accomplishments. I'm like, they're getting praised for all these other things. And you know, no one's talking about the stuff I'm good at, but of course, like the men aren't, we're not having the same conversations about the boys in, in the family friend group, right? Absolutely, like if you think about those and I won't assume everyone's experience was the same, but a lot of the family friend out uh, things we gatherings we would go to, the men and women sat separately, mm-hmm. and typically the women were in the kitchen, and then the men were in the living room, and like the women were kind of facilitating bringing things out, right? And then there's some point in the afternoon or evening which I can completely connect to that experience of this weird like informal talent show Mm -hmm. and this used to like so I'm I'm, I relate to the discomfort of like the praise I think that's such an important point that you made about that praise that's given but it's also very confusing because at least growing up in my household we were like especially told to kind of be conscious of how we carried our bodies as a woman um, and how we showed up, right? Like, it was very mm-hmm. early. And I also developed at, like, nine. So it was, like, very <laughs> awkward. <laughs> hey, at least you have your sister you're going through it with. It was uh, interesting. Um, but I remember, like, then watching these girls um, do Bollywood dances in front mm-hmm. of the family. And it was kind of awkward to awkward, see. Totally. Yeah, it's like Bollywood is sensual, right? Like totally. which, nothing is wrong with that, but it was just mixed messages to be honest. Totally. To be told one thing, but then you're getting praised for that when it's in the form of a current Johar movie, but then it's also like not the same when you're at home. Um so that always really confused me and I always felt deeply uncomfortable when those moments like the start like people started to sing or like dance because mm-hmm. that type of expression was rarely ever encouraged. But it's also another level of confusing because the focus on the arts almost felt like it was a way to cling to our Indian culture. Mm-hmm. But that's not actually what we would allow our like gener- like majority, like we were pushing for different career tracks, but somehow when it came to our childhoods, there was this whole emphasis on like 
you need to be in the arts or know how to sing and dance totally. but make yep. sure you become a doctor yeah i mean to your point like when i wanted to go to a like a rap concert like literally you know as a teenager one of my <laughs> one of my rebel? first concerts <laughs> um or you know take up an instrument or things like that you know i mean those are still related to excuse me they're still related to music and to the arts just in a way that's you know maybe not accepted or or that seems uncomfortable as opposed to you know the the family friend group spending most of the weekend you know performing songs and dances and singing and, and things like that yeah so I'm curious too like because you did bring up your brother as well and I, I love that like in your household there is less of that pressure to be different um than your brother because I know a lot of folks I, I didn't grow up with a brother but a lot of my friends who have brothers did feel in invisibly this difference in how the son's expectations were and how mm-hmm. the daughter's expectations were so in your household super cool to see that it's not there but did you ever experience any kind of nuance because of that too long term yeah so really good question because I think that while the gender norms, they weren't consciously or explicitly pushed on me, which to your point, I am just very grateful for. Um, I think the the confusing part about that was seeing the dynamic between my parents and other Indian families and other Indian couples that I knew, you know, even if I was sleeping over at my friend's house and seeing the dynamic between her parents or, you know, any example, really, they were much more traditional as most, you know, so many of our our parents, uh, you know, kind of gender relationship dynamics are, though I do know some examples that I can think of where that's actually not the case. And that's really impressive and surprising given just the norms of our parents' generation. But I think that is, it's just such a good example of sort of the the confusion that does result because they're not necessarily leading by example you know Mm -hmm. they there are so many families including my own where you know the female was the primary caretaker didn't necessarily have the same level of education or career you know that the the male or the dad had um you know obviously expectations around cooking you know maintaining the household then taking care of the kids, all of those things. And, you know, that was very much present in in my family. And my mom didn't work most of my childhood and, you know, stayed at home with with my brother and I. And, um, you know, that was just, it, it didn't seem strange. That was just what we were seeing everywhere, you know? So by the time I was getting to college and it was clear to my parents that I was um, fortunately just like, gifted from an academic perspective, you know, like it was clear that that was my strength, you know, and mm-hmm. um, they, you know, they they did like praise that and reinforce that and that that was all good. Um, but then I'm like, okay, well now that I've done well in school, I have a shot at like, you know, great colleges and all these things. Um, and I was like, wait a second, like, I don't really know any older women that have done this, you know, like this is kind of weird. Oh my gosh, and no kidding. Right. And like and then, you know, especially from there, having gone into um, a career in tech, which is 
uh, very, very male dominated and, you know, um, really kind of realizing, I don't know when I really realized it, but at some point it became very conscious to me that I didn't know any like older women or like mentor type figures that had done something similar, you know? And whenever I did realize that, I remember thinking like, shit, I wish I had realized this earlier, <laughs> you know? Cause I could have maybe like intentionally made some effort to seek out mentors and people like that, you know, cause they obviously exist, even if they weren't in my, my little community or my world, of course, there, there are so many great female leaders in our, in our industry. And I really wish I had realized that and then made an effort to kind of seek that out rather than just kind of thinking that, oh, okay, if I just put my head down and, you know, do what I'm told, work hard, get good grades. And then similarly, like do well and have your manager like you at work, you know, things will just work out. And we, we all know that the world's not that simple. And I think I really realized that later than, than I had wished, you know? I completely agree and relate to that. I think it's very interesting how the expectations from our families are very interesting. Like, they're nuanced in that they have the same expectations of what they did, right? Like, in addition to the educational prioritization. And so what I mean by that is I think it's incredibly lucky that our some of our pockets of culture there's a lot of emphasis on education and like furthering that right Mm -hmm. um at the same time the expectations of a woman don't change so what you were Mm -hmm. describing right like in addition to the career aspect you're still expected to maybe date by a certain age get married by a certain age Mm -hmm. but then to your point there's no one who's done this before so (laughs) i've had a lot of like moments where i'm like it's not to be like a brat and be like, stop expecting things of me, mom and dad. But like, yeah, just tell me what to do. And I'll do yeah, <laughs> but I'm like, honestly, like it seems crazy to me that we don't have like any kind of mentorship or like breaking ground before. So on one hand, I'm not complaining because it's mm-hmm. it's still a very privileged position to be in. Mm-hmm. I did feel very grateful, right? Like I remember like having like my Mad Men moment in this apartment once where I moved and it was like kind of my dream apartment. I always thought I would have an apartment like that in San Francisco with a partner. And then I Mm -hmm. was like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, I'm a woman. I can do this like by Mm -hmm. myself. And I was looking out and I felt very grateful that like my mom went from her father's to her husband's home and she didn't really get the chance to realize her potential by a single as a single woman and I think like I always felt like very lucky that I get to work and my only problem is work socialize go home make sure I'm like taking care of my future yeah go to the gym yeah it was such a it felt like oh my god what is this dream world yeah and you feel selfish right because like all of those things are about bettering you, right? Like even something simple like going to the gym, I mean, that's just for you, right? Like it's not our moms, you know, if they had taken an hour to do that, then they're neglecting the kids or they're neglecting their communities or they're neglecting their husbands, like something that's not about them. Absolutely. And this is real. Like I was actually like reading this one article of this interview of this woman named Deepa Narayan, and she's a Delhi sociologist. It's a really great article in Washington Post. 
Um, and they interview her about her book, Quiet, which she did in response to the Nirbaya rape that took place in 2012. Mm-hmm. So um, fast forward to 2016 or sorry, 2018. Um, she's done all this research interviewing Indian men and women. And what she found really surprising is that even the most feminist Indian American women or Indian women who even the most feminist Indian women who had modern careers kicking butt, right? They would use words to describe themselves, such as mother, sacrifice, giving. Mm-hmm. And men would use powerful leader. And so she makes the point like women are still thinking about no matter what is going on and what they're capable of meeting the needs of the roles that they play and a lot of it centers around being selfless yeah and that could even translate into work like you know in our careers like even if you know i mean i know that neither of us you know have children and you know there are maybe other ways we think about that sacrifice like i think it translates into you know at work like we are the yes people you know it's like it is my job to make everyone else's lives easier right and if there's some task i can be taking on whether it's sometimes it is a great challenging stimulating project and those are great opportunities to take on but i think we've probably all been in positions where sometimes it's like the shit like grunt work too you know some administrative task or some some organizing of people or of an activity and it's like oh, I'll take that on. It'll just, everyone will appreciate it. It'll just make things easier for everybody else. And we probably don't recognize that that stuff is taking away from the other things we should be doing to to better ourselves. I remember like, especially I think a lot of women can relate to this in Indian households is you are taught how to be very hospitable and giving in the household, right? So if guests come over, just being so kind, offering them chai, like moving your whole sort of life around the guest because the guest is God. Um, And I was an older sibling. And while I feel really lucky that my parents never made me feel like, oh, you're not a son or anything, there was this different kind of pressure that came from being the oldest of the entire, my dad's side of the family, So I was expected to be incredibly hospitable, like everyone's watching you type of pressure. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you bring that to the corporate um, place, I think it started to show up in the ways that you were talking about of feeling like I need to be that very graceful, um, hospitable younger team member where I respected my elders, the SVPs, and like didn't push back on the older men. Like... I don't know. I'm thinking about when I've been on teams of mostly men where, you know, it's like, oh, let's just, you know, Shelly, can you like plan the team outing, you know, or can you like book the travel accommodations? I'm like, what kind of bullshit is that? I know. (laughs) Yeah. I kept getting in the same role of like social chair and like, I like it, but it's a lot of work. And that's why they delegate it to the like youngin who's not going to say no. Right. Um, And so over time, I think I realized like, You learn in your career at some point the power of no and how important that is because I started to see an immediate shift of like pushing back even on work stuff that is not that like related in that way. But when people try to use you for notes and all of that, which a lot of women can relate to. Yeah. You're like, oh, my God. Now I can actually get on the real work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not good at that. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm not interested in that. <laughs> you don't like my handwriting, trust me. <laughs> exactly. I think this is a really great place actually to talk a little bit more about your career and tech, especially considering that you worked at some really male dominated places like mm-hmm. Uber was famously in the news too for these reasons and you were mm-hmm. there for the crux of the Me Too movement, all the drama with Travis Kalanick. What was your experience like there? Yeah. Um Gosh, where do I start about my experience with Uber? It was such a, just such a kind of monumental part of, of my career and really my life. Um, so, I mean, I, I was so fortunate to work with just some great, great people there and some people that today I consider like some of my closest friends. And that was just such a great community that I was able to develop in Chicago and and really like, I guess, nationwide and even worldwide a bit, um, just given, you know, getting the opportunity to, to work in some other cities and countries and every community, um, you know, kind of had some things in, in common and then some things that were very different from the sort of some of the, the news or the things that came out about the environment and some of the uh, toxic aspects of the culture in you know, in either San Francisco or, or Silicon Valley. And I think what was interesting about my experience specifically was, you know, I did work mostly with, with men, like that's just a fact. Um, and I mean, you did, your, your success or your like ability to get things done did correlate a bit with your ability to just kind of fit in and like get along with your your teammates, you know? And that's even beyond like, forget about being brown. Like that's like a whole nother thing. You know, I know we're kind of focusing yeah. this conversation on gender, but you know, especially those early days, we spent so much time together. I mean, we were working literally every waking minute. And in my role specifically, we were traveling together quite a bit too. So, you know, it's gonna be quite apparent if you're, if you're traveling, if you're spending weekends and like all these, you know, hours working together and if you are not fitting in, like it's going to be a problem, you know, like maybe you can sort of um, find your own, like kind of carve out your own niche, but eventually it's going to be like, okay, well, maybe you're not invited into like certain projects or certain initiatives or, you know, certain um, opportunities where there may be like, oh, you know, Shelly, we need a team on the ground in like whatever, you know, a different city. And you're going to naturally just pick people that you get along with, right? Like that's yeah. kind of just human nature. And so I think what was interesting is that I never really found it like problematic per se. Like I, I've always had a lot of male friends. Like I did grow up always having like my brother and his group of friends around, um, like like getting along with men is like never been a challenge and that was that part of it was fine but like you definitely have to draw the line where like you want to you know you want to get along you want to make friends with everybody and just kind of like get along with people but like I never wanted to be considered one of the guys because like at the end of the day I'm not a guy yeah right and I never like I always kind of hated having that thought of 
you know, am I like, am I being like too girly about this? And like, again, I use that word in like air quotes because I hate some of the Mm -hmm. like some of the connotation around, you know, some of the negative connotation around being girly. But, um, you know, I know you talked about it in a previous uh, episode with with another friend, that feeling of like, oh, is my brown showing, you know, like, am I hiding it well enough? And that was how I felt as it related to, to gender. I'd be like, cool, I like get along with these guys. They're my good friends. Like we can talk about some of the, some of their interests that we share. Like we can talk about sports or whatever, you know, again, like I, I, I hate to stereotype and I, I don't mean it to, to sound like I, I just assume all yeah. men are into one thing or <laughs> all women are into another, yeah. but you know, I was kind of like, okay, I can like talk the talk and we have plenty in common and this is great. And you know, then some situation would come up where I'm like, okay, now, like, my approach to the situation is very different. Like, maybe we are invited to some formal event and I, like, want more time to get ready than the other guys, you know? And it's like, now it's like, man, like, bringing Shelly along was annoying. Like, she needs an hour to get ready and everyone else is ready to go, you know? Mm. And, like, just it's one, like, silly example, but, like, we all know those, like, microaggressions can pile up. And that was always my concern with, like, especially like when being on the road and being in like these relatively intimate situations where you're spending a lot of time together and you know you want to be like easygoing and getting along with everybody but then like something would come up and I'd be like shit like is my is my girliness showing and I like don't want to ever I don't want to have to second guess that because I love being a girl and I love all the girly things about me you know and similar to like when you think are aspects of your brown identity showing like we just we shouldn't have to worry about that and I like I hate even thinking about those moments when I know I had that feeling absolutely and what you mentioned earlier about the piece of like not to generalize with men too like I completely hear you in fact when I think about these cultures that were talked about a lot publicly like uber I wonder how many men were also struggling because it doesn't like not everyone wants to participate or does agree with participating in the toxic masculinity of totally what we see in tech sometimes. So again, yeah, shout out to our LA men. Um, but as a brown woman of color, there's an intersectionality that it sounds like you're getting at of like, it's mm-hmm. not just that I'm a woman, I'm also a brown woman. So also like feeling like, how do I blend in? Um, what were your thoughts when you think about that and who you are what were your thoughts when some of the Kalanick drama started to you know um, become publicized and for anyone who doesn't know if you can explain what happened yeah sure so um you know I think it's it's definitely this ongoing challenge or problem in the tech community and a lot of it does revolve around Silicon Valley specifically that, you know, in in some of these like technical roles, especially in like engineering teams and and different teams that are very, very male dominated, there um, there often can be a lot of just blatant sexism towards the women in those in those roles and on those teams. And, you know, it it all comes out in different ways. Like I said, it's those it's often those microaggressions that pile up and Unfortunately, sometimes it's more blatant than that. It's being, you know, blatantly harassed. You know, um, I know there were stories of, you know, um, people saying that like they, you know, they couldn't get like a certain promotion or a certain opportunity or whatever, um, you know, because 
maybe they turned someone down for a date, you know, or things like that. So like, like retaliation essentially. And I think what was interesting about how public it became with Uber was, you know, so many of us in the industry, I think are aware of this problem and don't, would never deny that it exists. And Uber kind of was, um, I don't know, maybe a catalyst or like whatever word you want to use for really exposing a bigger problem, I think just in the industry in general. Yeah. You know, there's no reason that, you know, Kalanick and other, other people involved aside, there's no reason that this issue is unique to Uber, right? Like it's, Definitely. it's unfortunately more of a societal, societal issue. So um, in some ways I'm glad that because Uber was such a newsworthy and in some ways notorious type name, it did bring light to issues that maybe wouldn't have been exposed if it was, you know, a smaller name or something that doesn't get as much media attention. I'm, I'm in that way. I'm glad. I'm obviously not glad that it it was happening or that it does happen, um, but I do think recognizing it is is a good first step. And then I do also think that a lot of the the changes that came about at Uber with leadership changes, with some of the policy changes. Um, teams that were created, you know, to kind of better um, manage, you know, some of the the people related issues. A lot of that did make a big difference. And um, a lot of those changes happened while I was there. And I was was able to see firsthand some of the improvements that that came about. So, I mean, while it's definitely still an issue, I'm at least glad things are are moving in a positive direction. Um, And then I will say, too, I think that some of these companies and offices kind of growing beyond just uh, Silicon Valley or San Francisco, I think that's helping too, because it's recruiting a very, very diverse workforce. You know, um, right now I actually work for a Canadian tech company um, and and it is super, super diverse because we're just recruiting from a different pool of people than companies maybe historically have. And I think as that trend grows and other cities um, like Chicago, but also Seattle, Austin, Denver, Portland, like all of these cities becoming tech hubs, I think is only going to be a good thing for the diversity of you know the workforce. I have so much I want to say to that. And one of them being like what you just said, I think that's perhaps one of the benefits to, um, and it's crazy to call it benefit, but with the remote work movement mm-hmm. um, that happened mm-hmm. as a result of COVID, you have to or can, and you're not limited anymore to a certain area, um, which will be interesting for f- folks like myself who are in the Bay Area, what that does to our job market. But it, it's, yep. it's wonderful in that you can start to hire more diverse folks who didn't necessarily find it super appealing to come to the Bay Area where it is ridiculously expensive, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I remember I was on the phone with my best friend in Atlanta and she heard me ordering orange juice and she's like, why are you paying $5 for orange juice? And I was like, it's a glass though, it's fresh squeezed. Um, What I found and what made me also want to move from San Francisco is without hating on it, because I love San Francisco to this day, but yes, true love is not about you have to be the same that you were before it's wanting that place to be happy and Mm -hmm. one of the things that bugged me about San Francisco over time is how homogenous it continued to be and COVID is migrating a lot of folks out Um, and while people are a little bit like oh I wanted to go back to what it was I'm honestly just happy to see that 
maybe San Francisco can come back to a little bit of its diversity and change things up a little because it was getting very uniform. Yeah. Um, and actually, like, in, in all the ways, pushing out what made it originally interesting. So... Anyway, that's like a side note. But one of the things is due to that homogenous culture, to your point of like how that would show up in the workplace, especially in tech, it's also not easy to be that person. Like the person who really blew the whistle at Uber, I think her Mm -hmm. name was Susan Fowler. Mm -hmm. She is like a hero, right? Like when people say these, you know, this is done for attention, it's baffling to me because that person's life will never be the same. Like no one wants to be known as that person. So when they do it, it has to be that freaking bad. Um, and I, I kind of wondered at times, like there are a lot of also women of color in these roles and I couldn't help but notice that it was a white woman of, who spoke up, especially when we think about, let's say an Indian woman, how much we sort of have that, like, I just have to kind of put up with this. I have to be respectful and just yeah. let these things slide. What do yeah. you think about that? Yeah, I think it's super interesting because especially if you're used to working with mostly white men, you you do feel the need to just not be, I don't know, like a troublemaker. Like not, it's like, I don't want to make my manager's life's lives any more difficult, you know, or I don't want to make HR's life difficult. Like I know that the few times I have had to have like a serious, you know, people-related or HR-type-related conversation, I second-guess it. I'm like, okay, is this 30 minutes I'm asking from my HR business partner? Like, is it a good use of their time? Like, you you feel, like, selfish, which is just ridiculous because it is their job to support you, you know? And you do feel selfish being like, oh, you know, I'm bringing my problem to them. Like, should I? You know, should I just be dealing with it on my own? Is, Is my problem really that big of a deal? And... I, you know, I've talked to other friends about this too, and you almost develop this like sense of pride in being like the easygoing, you know, like, oh, you know, my managers love me because I like never, like, I never cause issues. I never like bring up any problems. And while, yeah, I'm sure like your manager does love you because of that, there are some legitimate things you should probably be bringing up, you know, like when you don't get like, I don't know, like the bonus that you were promised or when someone else is chosen for an opportunity that, you know, you had like shown all the same qualifications for, like you do feel selfish bringing that up and you kind of feel like you're just being like a whining crybaby. And that is so, so ingrained in us from early on because it's like, why can't you just be a good sport? And I know so many other other brown women and actually men too, that have said the same thing from their parents. Like they get so much like, why can't you just be a good sport? Why can't you just go along with this? You know, and that so translates into how we then feel about people in positions of authority at work. Absolutely. I think it's really, and I'm I'm glad you called out, like I'm sure it's not exclusive to women. And then also um, the fact that this is something that women, and no matter what, ethnic background you have, you might struggle with. I I know a lot of white women who talk about this concept of like feeling like, oh, can I ask for that negotiation, et cetera, right? So it's a a problem for our community of women in general that we're dissecting. But I think especially once you add another dimension to your point of like the Indian experience too, you start to see this, the 
point about that study earlier, like the selflessness and like Mm -hmm. we kind of have a interesting need to suck up to authority and have authority Mm -hmm. like us at all point. Um, Like no shocker, right? Like at all points, like your uncles, aunties, your parents should like you and you do whatever you can to make sure that people approve of you. Um, Yeah. And then like the minute they express something that maybe hints at otherwise, like it just, it like kills you. And like the minute that someone kind of implies otherwise that maybe they're disappointed in you or maybe they're not thrilled with the way you went about something, it just really, really eats at us, you know? And probably more than it should, you know, like we probably have a convicted, confident reason for why we went about something the way we did, but that need for approval or trying to avoid that feeling of disappointment is so ingrained in us that it really does eat away at us. Even if it's just like a manager at work and at the in the grand scheme of things, their disappointment in me maybe doesn't mean anything, you know, but those are the things like it'll keep us up at night or we'll come home and like complain to our friends or our partners or whatever about it, about like, oh man, like that person was kind of like peeved at me and I don't know what to do. I need to like make it up to them, you know, and we feel that that guilt just weighs on us, whether that person really like holds holds like the status or the importance in our lives to be worthy of that that feeling from us. Absolutely. It's sort of like I imagine it like a Venn diagram because think about like so humor me. There's one circle that's in general anyone living in any society. So in our society, American society, you're going to struggle with this feeling of wanting to be accepted and uh, again, I know a lot of women who deal with that piece too of like am I being selfish? Am I Um, But then you also add in like the other circles so the overlap of like the Indian experience. And then you're stuck in this kind of like middle where you have two groups of people that are evaluating you per what you're coming across as and holding you to a standard. Right. So you take the American standard, you take the Indian standard. It's really confusing because they don't always gel. It's also very hard because the Indian circle can be sometimes smaller and more potent Mm -hmm. in that way. Um, you know, even just like the family friend circle we were talking about, let's say they start talking about like, oh, it wasn't good that Lahari did this or Shelly did this. It really stings because it, it's sort of like a concentrated version of that right, um, pressure. Right. So it it just creates, I think, just a lot for anyone who shares multiple identities. I think it becomes really difficult to resolve that middle intersecting point of the Venn diagram. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah, because especially if you do have like a small or tight knit family network or friend network, you know, you kind of, you you might, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you might recognize that, you know, if you disappoint them or, or whatever, you know, word you want to use that, you know, maybe you don't think there's anywhere else you can go, you know, it's like, well, if I disappoint my, my parents or my aunt and uncle or, you know, someone in that, that kind of tight circle, then where do I go from there? I don't have another set of, you know, parents and aunt and uncle to go find, you know, and then you kind of, it's probably another, another topic altogether, but then, you know, you do think about seeking out new, maybe new networks and obviously they won't replace your immediate family, but, you know, maybe networks that you do find a bit more supportive or kind of in line with some of your, your values on these things. And, you know, you do end up relying on that because at the end of the day, we all need some sense of community, you know, and 
Um, if you're if you're kind of disconnecting from one, you might go go seek that out in another place. Skr, skr. So that brings us to the end of part one of Gender Norms with Shelley. We are going to continue the conversation in our next episode where we pick up with how these dynamics play a part in our relationships, whether it is our romantic or also what we see with our families and our parents. So let's down to Brown next week. Mm-hmm.